podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. You know, GM or genetically modified crops have been both the beauty and the beast for scientists as they've tried to work out how we can increase our production for the food we need over the next 50 years. Globally, we seem to have almost a religious mistrust of modifying the genes of plants or of animals, regardless of what the benefit might be in terms of food production. And yet we don't apply that to the medicines that we inject into ourselves or or take even by mouth. The price of the loss of this tool to our scientists has been massive in terms of both famine and economic loss over many decades. And yet quite often we've achieved exactly the same end result by Mendelian breeding as we would have if we'd spliced those genes using genetic modification a lot earlier. It's a little bit like a lotto draw where you would stick your hand in the lotto drum and pick out the six numbers and the two supplementaries to see if you'd won, rather than actually letting the drum roll and randomly accept whatever came out the bottom, hoping that they would be those same numbers. The political stunting of food production without any valid reason seems quite bizarre, but nonetheless it has been very real and it has caused some multinational organisations to actually withdraw from the race to increase our production in keeping with our rising population. In Australia, GM crops and their use is controlled by a neo-government department called the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator. And so to try and understand both the reasoning and the process for approving our GM crops, our agriminder for this episode are both members of the Technical Advisory Committee for that body. Firstly, Professor Robert Henry is currently the director of the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation, which is known colloquially as COFI. Before he was appointed as the director of COFI, he was the director of the Centre for Plant Conservation Genetics at Southern Cross University and had various other roles in grain production and grain research throughout Australia. Professor Henry's specialty research area is the study of agricultural crops using molecular tools like genetic engineering and gene editing. And he joins us today on Agriminders. Welcome, Robert. Hello, Chris. How important has and is genetic modification been in in your sort of innovative planning? Well, certainly it's one of the key tools that we have available to us in agriculture to uh, improve the plants and animals that we, we use in, in agricultural production. And so it, it has been and will remain, I think, an important tool. But it's a tool that's, uh, that's changing in its importance with the technology. The technology itself's evolving. And so uh, its place will continue to, uh, to change. We seem to almost lose GM as a tool due to kind of a public perception that anything to do with GM, they went back to John Wyndham's day of the Triffids book and said, we don't want to be like that. Yes, we have uh, faced, uh, you know, after an initial period of excitement about the potential of the technology, a long period really that where we've seen some application of the technology, but not the full application that we might have had because of the consumer reaction uh, worldwide and the uncertainty about consumers, uh, particularly in places like Europe, about the value of, of these products. So there has been quite a long period of relatively 
little action in this space. Uh, there, there's been a market penetration in certain segments, uh, but it hasn't gone as far as it might have because of that. Uh, I think that might change uh, as the technology changes over the next few years. In terms of where we've been, what has been the biggest contributor, you think, of GM to global food and fibre production? Well, cotton's been probably the, the standout example of where GM technology has really played a huge role in improving the environmental sustainability and productivity of, of that crop worldwide. But there's been extensive application, particularly in, in America, in, in crops like soybean and corn as well, where they've certainly benefited enormously from the technology. Uh, and so we can't minimise the, the positive benefits that we've achieved, both environmentally and in terms of production from the technology, but it certainly hasn't gone as far as it might into smaller commodities where maybe we'd be deterred because of the, the regulatory cost of applying the technology in smaller markets. So what do you think the fears have been of people that have actually caused big companies like AstraZeneca to almost drop their GM research? Well, I think we've, we've faced a, a range of concerns. People cite concerns about health and environment, but certainly in, in most situations and certainly in the Australian situation, we, we have a regulatory system that's quite rigorous in terms of looking at the environmental and health uh, effects of this technology. But there, I think it's partly the fear of unknown and, and some of it's been the, the concern people have about ownership of their food and the idea that they don't like the big companies that might own their food or foreign companies might own their food. Uh, this has certainly been the view uh, maybe in Europe that they thought that American companies were going to own their food. Some of that has coloured, I think, people's perception of the product and and where they don't see a compelling value proposition in the product, they've decided they don't like it. I think that will change as we produce products that really have a compelling uh, story to tell about what they're offering to either the environment or to health. Have we missed out on some technology that would have made a massive difference because of that fear? It's very hard to know what might have happened if we'd had a, an easier regulatory path and greater acceptance because there just hasn't been the investment or activity that there might have been in the absence of that opposition. So it's very hard to know what those lost opportunities are. I think looking forward, we have to think about you know, how we can turn that around in terms of uh, using the technologies that we now have in a positive way. In Australia, of course, we, I mean, in America, you can get all sorts of GM crops now in soybeans and corn and so on, but our big crops here are cereals like wheat, and yet we don't seem to have adapted many GM technologies into our wheat crops. So if you look at our wheat yields, while, while wheat yields are, are up, they're, they're not up as much as the sort of tenfold increase we've seen in GM crops in America. Um, you think that's something we can actually get on top of now? Well, I think we'll see more widespread application to uh, products and markets that are smaller and, and might have been seen in the past as being too difficult. If the regulatory cost and, and so forth comes down and there is some greater acceptance uh, in the path to market, the initial concentration of investment by uh, plant breeders has been in crops that they can control the sale of the seed and they can get a good return on investment. Uh, more widespread application and application to crops like wheat has been much slower because they've traditionally been uh, commercialised in a somewhat different way. But the benefits uh, of this technology in, in those crops are, are substantial and, and we get to see things like rice and wheat fully benefit from the technology. 
It's interesting, Robert, that if you look at medical uses of GM, I was just doing some reading around and, and from what I can read, there are over 100 key medical products that are now generated by genetically modified organisms solving things like cancer and hepatitis B, um, insulin production. That was probably one of the early ones. We used to get all our insulin from pigs and now we get it from from a bug that produces the insulin. Why has that been? Everyone says, oh, yeah, no problem. We're happy to have that. But yet we're not happy to have Roundup-ready crops that can make a massive difference sustainability-wise in Australia. Yes, it's, it's long been uh, something that I think those of us working with the technology you've wondered about where we see people that are happy to inject a GM product but not to eat one. That's weird. It is. It is, And I think it it's about uh, the choices they've got at that point. I think they think if something's really going to help their health, they can see the benefit of it and they're not so concerned about the technology. When it comes to food, people have very particular types of views and I think we, we really need to get them to understand the positive sides of, of this technology and overcome the fear largely of the unknown. So there is, there's actually some work going on at the moment about food crops having medical, if you like, genes planted into them so that there's this crossover now between medical and food into a crop. So there's two lots of GM technology coming together. Do you think that's going to be something people are going to accept more when they see that uh, this modified food will also stop them getting the flu, for example? Well, uh, there's, there's a couple of different categories there. There are the food products that are sort of the nutraceutical products where there's a health benefit from eating that product that might have a genetic modification that improves your um, lifespan and so forth if you're consuming it. But the other one where we actually produce the medicine in the plant and if you, you like use the plant as a factory to produce that product and really that will succeed to the extent that plant-based production is cost-effective versus the, the alternative methods at the moment. And for some medical products, pharmaceutical products, that, that is going to be a, an attractive route to, to scale up production by, by growing crops that produce the, the pharmaceutical product. Uh, that seems to have, uh, I think, a, a relatively easy path to market because people won't be eating it as a food. They'll be using it as a pharmaceutical product in the way that we've just discussed. So, Robert, the GM is changing, really, and now we're talking about genetic editing rather than genetic modification. What, what's the difference? It's a difference has come about, I guess, because of the changes in the technology that we have available. The way I like to explain it is that genetic modification traditionally with a, with a crop plant has been where we take the genes, we take the DNA out of the plant, out of the cells, and we do some uh, rearrangement of it or modification of it and then put it back in. That's the conventional genetic engineering. Essentially what we're doing now is going inside the cell and changing it without taking it out. And that's... Uh, that's a more subtle process uh, we call gene editing and uh, it produces things that essentially we can also produce quite often by methods that have long been considered not to be GM, like the use of mutagenesis. What's mutagenesis? Well, mutagenesis is when we expose the plant to some sort of radiation that causes genetic change. Now, that's been widely used in crop breeding and it has never been uh, regulated as a GM approach. And so very many of our... Uh, particularly uh, fruits, for example, of, uh, that, that might be seedless, for example, have been generated by those sorts of processes. So you nuke them, basically, well, you sort of nuke them with some sort of rays which, which kill off those particular genes, a bit like how you kill a cancer sometimes. That's right, and that's, that's an accepted non-GM technology. 
what we now have is is using more the sort of methods we've used with the with genetic modification to be much more targeted in the way we do that sort of change and in a technology that could only be regarded as even safer than things that have been long accepted so it does create a challenge for us to know how to regulate and how to represent this different array of technologies that we now have available to us in the genetic toolbox, if we like. If we look at all the tools we've got available to genetically improve crops and to work with with animals, of course, uh, we really have quite an array, a spectrum of technologies. And uh, what we really have to do is understand how people will, will react to and accept the products of those different technologies. So in Australia, we have a thing called the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator or the OGTR, through which anything that's classified as GM has to pass in order to be allowed to be used in Australia. And that's created some strange, and I should point out that you're an advisor to, although you're not a decision maker, you're an advisor to that OGTR in Australia. And there's some weird things we've seen where if you find a crop or breed a crop by Mendelian genetics, it can be easier to get that to market than it actually get exactly the same crop that's been created by some sort of GM technique. Yes, well, there's a couple of things to say there. That's certainly long been the case that uh, you can quite often produce the same end product by a GM route and a non-GM route, and one faces a, a large regulatory hurdle and the other doesn't. In Australia, we have, uh, I think, what's widely regarded as a, a very rigorous uh, regulatory system that does ensure that anything that gets through the system has been established as being safe from an environmental and, and health perspective. And that process, um, I think, is continuing to evolve. The process uh, really is, uh, I think, a very good one compared to what we see in other countries. In some places, we don't have regulation or in other places, we just basically see the process as being uh, prohibited. Australia, we don't prohibit the technology, but we tightly regulate it and ensure that the products that come through it are safe and desirable in terms of their environmental impact. And I think that the Australian regular environment is seen worldwide as a model of something that a lot of other places would aspire to. And so uh, I'm hopeful that that we can, uh, in many ways, lead the way uh, internationally in coming up with uh, sound regulatory processes here. So... Mendelian genetics, which was really a term that was used because it was based around the first sort of people who played with genetics and, and Mendel in particular, it really involves um, Gregor Mendel was a scientist who sort of played around with crossing things with other things and letting nature take its course. So really the method is different, but the end result can be almost identical. For example, you could cross tomatoes with deadly nightshade and end up with a totally poisonous plant. Yet under this OGTR thing, they wouldn't go anywhere near that. Yeah, so we, we certainly have a system where you can do things that are unsafe that are nothing to do with uh, GM, and you can do things that are very safe that are GM. And, and so the key point is that whether the product is safe or not is very little to do with the processes that have been involved in producing it. So there's been a, a, a long school of thought that we should be putting a lot more emphasis on the safety of the end product of these technologies rather than the processes that we're using to get there because inherently uh, there's quite often nothing that's not safe or is safe about a particular process. It's really what it it is that you're trying to produce. So in your example, you could uh, bring toxins into a tomato to defend against insects by conventional plant breeding that was outside the regulatory system, but that could be quite dangerous for, um, for human consumption, whereas you can bring in 
uh, are gene by GM technology that's proven to be uh, very safe and that only targets insects, for example, and you would have a very torturous, uh, by comparison, regulatory process to go through. So we do want to see over time, I think, the system evolve to put much more emphasis on the safety of the product rather than the way that we've got there because uh, uh, you know, conventional techniques uh, have risks as well as the modern technologies. So for some people, it's almost a sort of a hand of God type issue where they're saying if we start interfering with God's works, we're in trouble to start with, whereas if we just let God do it, it must be okay or the better chance of it being okay. Yes, but I I, I think the counter to that is that we've been playing around uh, genetically with the, the plants and animals we use in agriculture and more widely for a very long time, for thousands of years. So there is a human involvement in uh, all of these crops if you compare a modern wheat variety with the wild grasses they were bred from. They look nothing like the modern varieties and all of that's been done conventionally. As you say, we haven't used GM technology yet in those products. A great example of this is is dogs. We see this great spectrum of domesticated dogs all coming from one wild animal, the grey wolf, and all because of human selection and breeding. So that's genetic modification on a large scale. Those dogs you've got at home are highly genetically modified compared to the wild uh, animals that they came from. And yet we all see that as an acceptable sort of process. And it's very much the same thing we've done in domesticating plants and animals for, for agricultural use. So Robert, looking at genetic editing, it's interesting to me that if this was all based on good science, how come the Europeans have taken the view that genetic editing is really the same as genetic modification. And yet in Australia, we've taken the view that it's different and it's quite okay. Well, so far anyway, I know there's a review going on, but the current view seems to be that we can do that. And the same in America, they seem to have accepted it as being acceptable. Yes, it comes down to legislation and legal definitions of what is a GMO. And the recent uh, decision in um, Europe has been a legal decision. So this has been a decision of the courts, not about really the science, but about what the current laws say in relation to the new technology. So in looking at gene editing and comparing that with what the way their legislations and legal definitions are defined, the courts have ruled that this falls within the scope of of what is a GMO. In other jurisdictions, uh, depending on the way that's legally defined, uh, this new technology would probably fall outside those definitions. So it's is not really a, a decision that's been based on scientific analysis of the of what's going on, but rather legal interpretations of existing legislation. So, Robert, really, GM has been seen to be anti-environment, but yet we've had things like Biopol, which is an environmentally friendly biodegradable plastic that's produced by genetically modified bacteria. So, what other benefits do you see environmentally for the use of GM? I think that's a good example, but the one that we talked about earlier, cotton, is, a, I think, an even more spectacular example and easy, I think, for us all to understand in that in the case of cotton, this plant is subjected to a lot of pressure from insects and developing insect resistance has been a really key uh, advance there. The GM cottons that we grow almost exclusively today are genetically resistant to to insects and don't require the use of extensive amounts of chemicals to control those insects. So there's been an enormous benefit in the change to to GM. 
in terms of the amount of chemical residue that's in the environment, the the cost uh, of, of doing that and the cost to the environment. And so uh, we avoid, of course, the, the non-target effects of those uh, chemicals to organisms other than the the targeted insects by using the GM crop. So it's a, it's a great example of how the environment has benefited substantially by the introduction of a GM product. So in Australia, as well as um, cotton, and you talked about this genetically modified cotton, which stops the growth of uh, the insects in the cotton based on a bacteria, but we've also got a crop known as Roundup Ready crop. Now, Roundup, of course, is glyphosate, which is used as a weed killer, you can spray these crops with glyphosate and they don't themselves get killed, but all the weeds within them do. So you reduce the amount of cultivation and, again, things that you have to do to that crop to get production. Now, we've done it with canola, but they also have Roundup Ready corn, for example, in America available, and there are other crops potentially available. It seems to be very random what we let in and what we don't let in. You know, why is that? Is it poor research that's been done or some other reason? I think the range of GM products that are available in the market here in Australia is a reflection of what's been put through the regulatory system. And for smaller products, it, it may not have justified the effort to put all of them through. I, I, there's no particular barriers to entry in the Australian system, but things have to be put through the regulatory process to ensure that they are safe. That is a good example of how um, a herbicide resistance can have a positive uh, environmental impact on First of all, moving away from the use of uh, uh, less desirable herbicides in the environment that have been required in the past to ones that are seen to be less problematic. And of course, the the benefits then in terms of the tillage uh, and the reduced soil erosion and and the conservation values that are achieved by using the herbicide in that uh, selected way. What about animal welfare? Is there anything coming in that would help us with animal welfare issues? For example, you know, fly strike resistant sheep by GM modification of sheep, or is there anything on the horizon there in that area? Well, there is a, a good example from the United States of uh, the pole trait in cattle. This is a, a gene that controls the production of horns. Uh, this is a, an animal welfare issue, in fact, because uh, the removal of horns, of course, is a cost. Uh, it's an animal welfare issue, and it's it's quite necessary in terms of safety and uh, and so forth. This trait is present in some breeds of cattle, but not others. But what scientists in the US have done is transfer that trait into other breeds of cattle by using gene editing. So here we we can uh, take a gene that's in some breeds and introduce it into others uh, very readily without the challenge of of trying to do that conventionally, which would be quite hard. And here we've got a benefit that I think will be coming more widely worldwide to animal welfare because we no longer have the problem of of having to remove the horns from cattle. Uh, I think this is a good example of the sort of thing that this technology can do. So do you think the people, though, are keeping up? I know Walt Disney has always said the customer's not always right, but the customer's always the customer. But that's part of that process is the responsibility of, of us as scientists to keep the population up to speed with where these technologies are and what the real concerns are. How are we performed in that area in terms of as a population? Well, I think that's the key issue. We've really got to spend a lot of more time providing information to people to, that so they understand what the technology is and what it isn't, what the benefits are, all of the associated understandings that really aren't very widespread in the community about this issue. In many senses, uh, the science is seen to be complex and the lack of broad-based understanding in the community 
is really at the core of why we see resistance to this uh, technology. So I think uh, certainly as scientists uh, and as people uh, working in, in agricultural food production, we really need to put a lot more effort into explaining the underlying issues and trying to get a broader understanding in the public of, uh, of the underlying scientific principles here. But the antagonists, their main push in terms of education is to be make sure everything is labelled. But the labels don't come with an explanation. They just come with a label. So that just leads to an ongoing perception that could be based completely on misinformation. And if people see the label, they reject something that might be fantastic technology. So, you know, we've had this tension between those saying, well, look, just trust us and we won't put it on the label. And those saying the public need to be informed. Both of those arguments you can see have merit. How do we resolve that in Australia? It's a challenging issue. I, I, I think in the end, I, I tend to come down on the on the side of labelling it with the view that people should prefer the product that's got the label because they should understand why the GM product's better for the environment and better for their health and potentially more sustainable in its production. I think going the other way will continue to uh, create fear and the, the sort of perception that we're trying to hide something from the public. Uh, so it is a complex issue. I, I remember when GM cotton was first produced, there were a lot of T-shirts produced with big signs on them saying made only from GM cotton. And the view was that we'd sell this to environmentalists who would take on the view that they were supporting the environment by uh, using GM cotton. We were very wrong because the consumer reaction was quite different to that. But from a scientific point of view, that's the way uh, people would have thought at the time. So we've really got to manage public expectations and public understanding so that we don't get uh, an ongoing uh, misunderstanding of this technology. Do you think the OGTR has added to that education or do you think that that's actually created doubt in people's mind that it even exists? Well, I, th- I think the, the regulatory body is, is, is just that. Its role is to, uh, is to ensure that we have appropriate regulation so that nothing goes out there that's not safe and, and positive. What we have to do is, is probably outside of that body have uh, programs that educate people about the fact that we do have a regulatory system that's looking after these issues and that it is a rigorous process and that we should be supporting that regulation. And so uh, I think there's a broader responsibility in the community to to learn about these things and certainly a responsibility on the scientists and, and those agencies involved in producing these products to spend more effort in, in explaining it. You think that the AGTR works? Has it done a good job? Yes, my view is uh, it's delivered uh, outcomes that I've highly respected internationally, that uh, if something is approved uh, in Australia, I think people outside Australia would see the product as uh, clearly having been through an appropriate evaluation. And Robert, if we deny the use of GM, let's say that you know we didn't have that as a tool, what are our chances of being able to meet this target of producing you know, all this food over the next 50 years, more than we've eaten in the whole history of humanity, and yet we only know to make 30% of that now. To get there without GM, is that a possibility or is GM an absolute key to this? Well, I think the way you've got to look at that is you, we've got an enormous challenge and we need to apply a whole lot of technologies if we're going to meet that challenge. We, we can't have a business-as-usual approach. Business-as-usual won't deliver the food productivity gains we need for, to sustainably feed people into the future. We do need to have a whole lot of innovation and including genetic innovation to get there. Uh, The challenge is made so much greater if some of the technologies that we do have can't be applied because uh, of uh, 
reasons that we really uh, don't always understand. So it's like trying to achieve your goals with one hand tied behind your back or if community moves even further against some of these new technologies, maybe with both hands tied behind our back. It's really that sort of challenge. And really, we do need all of the technologies at our disposal and a rigorous process for evaluating the appropriateness and safety of them if we're going to meet those future challenges. Professor Robert Henry, thank you very much for being uh, AgriMinder today and, uh, and maybe just telling us the challenge we've got ahead. Let's hope that the the public get on board and work with us as we use this valuable tool to uh, meet the challenge of food security over the next 50 years. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. In part two, we'll speak to Dr. Danny Llewellyn, one of the elder statesmen of genetic modification as a tool in Australia and globally, and also an advisor to the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator in Australia. So join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.